Welcome to the Springs in the Desert podcast. We're so happy that you're here with us. We're those friends that you can take with you wherever you are on the path of infertility. Hey there, Springs in the Desert. I am your host, Jillian Kubik, and I'm here with two special guests. First, we have Alyssa West. Alyssa is wife to Father Paul West, Springs in the Desert spiritual father. Uh, they were married in 2009, many years before Father Paul became father officially. Uh, and together they have two children, Adelaide, nine, and Nicholas, six, and one child lost to miscarriage. Before coming a clergy family, Alyssa worked for over a decade as a board certified music therapist serving children and adults with physical and developmental disabilities, which I think is just so interesting. Um, I had glad to talk to you more about that some, sometime. <laughs> she transitioned to stay-at-home motherhood while Father Paul attended seminary, uh, and currently the family is living in Levittown, Pennsylvania, where Father Paul is a pastor at Our Lady of Perpetual Help Byzantine Catholic Church. Uh, her youngest, uh, having started kindergarten recently, uh, allowed Alyssa to take advantage of some newfound time on our hands to launch into a new field and has returned to college for graphic design. That is so fun. She also serves as a cantor for their parish. And in what free time she has left, which I'm not sure there's much, <laughs> Alyssa enjoys embroidery, baking, being outside, and making messes with the kids. It is so good to be here with you, Alyssa. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so good to be here. It's so glad to see everyone. And I'm really excited to chit chat. Yes. So oh, I'm so glad to have you. And our second guest is Dr. Megan Reister, who we're going to call her Meg uh, on this podcast from now on. And uh, she's wife to Adam and the mother of one young daughter named Charlotte. I love that name. And also, I love Adelaide and Nicholas. Those are just such beautiful names. Uh, she loves, in no particular order, <laughs> peanut butter and chocolate combinations, puppies, and her home state of Pennsylvania. She's now in Ohio resident. Uh, she's a teacher who enjoys working at a Catholic university and is passionate about working with pre-service teachers to help them be the best advocates they can be for the children they will serve as they fulfill their vocations as teachers. What a gift. That is oh, so beautiful. And I think that yeah, really speaks to your desire for spiritual motherhood, which has always uh, had a place in your heart, but even more so as you and your husband face secondary infertility, which is our topic today. Um, but before we jump in, it is so good to be here with you, Meg. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me here. And, you know, like Alyssa said, I'm excited to engage in chit chat and just have conversation with the both of you. Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, we'll just jump right into it. You know, for those who don't know what secondary infertility is, um, you might see a few different definitions, but generally speaking, it's defined as the inability to get pregnant or carry a child to term after previously giving birth. Um, the definition has also been expanded a little bit to include those who, like myself, were once able to conceive and now experience infertility, even if we were never able to carry that first conception to term. But Generally, uh, when you see the conversation happening, it's with a, a family or a couple who has maybe one or two children at home and now are unable to conceive for whatever reason. And I just, you know, our listeners really tell us that they uh, experience a lot of comfort by hearing our stories. And so I just want to give both of you a chance to share a little bit about your story of secondary infertility. And uh, so Meg, let's just start with you. If you'd be willing to just tell us a little bit more about your journey, whatever you'd like, uh, you can go ahead. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to share. So 
In terms of where to start, I guess I need to share a little bit of the background in terms of my husband and me and before we kind of entered each other's lives. So we did meet a little bit later in life. Um, He is seven years older than I. So by the time we met and married, I was 35 and he was 42. But I didn't think of anything of it, you know, having a a career and going to school for so long and being in the the workforce. It it was just kind of a natural progression on my end anyway of how life kind of unfolded. I always, from a young age, I always wanted to be a mother. I kind of took it for granted thinking that would happen. I think most of us do. (laughs) And but what's really interesting, the reason why I kind of want to start with a little bit of a backstory is because God is in all the details and he works through so many different aspects of our stories, both in obvious ways and maybe in ways that we won't know until we get to heaven. And so when I first met my husband, he was born and raised as a Catholic as I was. But in terms of viewpoints on family size and how we thought our marriage would kind of unfold, we had a little bit of differences of opinion. And so during our courtship, during our dating, we had a lot of hard conversations and a lot of kind of relearning and re-educating ourselves on what our faith teaches us. And so anyways, I have to also add a little bit of humor in here. At the time, my husband's license plate was something like the number six KDS and then 412. I might be off by a number, but I always see like, I don't know, maybe it's a teacher in me. I make words out of like, like, I don't know. And so being from Pennsylvania, I immediately recognize 412 as the Pittsburgh area code. And then six kids. And I said that to my husband when we were dating. I can't remember if we were engaged at the time. We might've been engaged at that point, but I remember jokingly saying, oh, I wonder if we're going to have six kids and if we're going to land in Western Pennsylvania. Now you have to take into account the fact that I was in North Carolina and he was in California. So that isn't exactly a likely, you know, but here I am in Ohio, very close to Pittsburgh, about 45 minutes. Again, we never would have written that detail into our story that we would have moved my husband cross country and I would have moved back up north from North Carolina and we would land in Ohio of all places. But again, he's in those details. So anyways, also going back to preconceived notions or ideas, my husband had not really given much thought to family size in the sense that it was kind of like, oh, whatever happens will happen. Whereas I was like, the more the better. Like I wanted to have a house busting at the seams and have children everywhere. And so the number six seemed like a good number, but we were open to whatever God might bless us with. And so during our courtship and our leading up to being married, it ended up being my husband. He started talking about, oh, well, we, I wonder how many we are going to have, like having a whole conversion of heart. So that's going to come into play in a moment. So that was rather interesting and beautiful to witness kind of like on the outside looking in, seeing this change in my husband. And so, yeah, so we ended up getting married and everything in our relationship was on a different timeline than I expected in a good way. I thought we would date for a longer period of time before we became engaged. I thought we would have a little bit of a longer engagement. Nope. I mean, when God opens doors, they swing wide, you know. (laughs) And so kind of follow that same line of thought. I thought we would have a year of marriage and then maybe the babies would start coming. Charlotte was our honeymoon baby. So, (laughs) you know, here we are. We had just moved to Ohio. We had just gotten married. We had just moved in together after the wedding. And now we're expecting a baby. And these were all wonderful blessings. But wow, like just a lot happening at once. And so the pregnancy, again, as I said, I was older. So I was classified as high risk just by my age. And then it was discovered at the first ultrasound that I had what are called fibroids. Now I didn't, I was the only girl in my family. So maybe that's part of it. It wasn't like I could talk to my brothers about like, 
you know, in my teen years and like young adulthood, like what my monthly periods were like. And so I wonder sometimes, like, had I had sisters or had I like talked to my girlfriends more? I mean, they weren't like everyday conversations, but my experience with my periods and whatnot, really all of my preteen, teen years, I thought were normal. But now after the fact, I realized that it's not typical to have to change the sheets every single month. And, you know, so with the fibroids and whatnot, there were a lot of issues, but because of my ignorance, my lack of really understanding my body and knowing about those issues and the implications they could have on perhaps conceiving and carrying a baby. So in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't know because that one pregnancy that we're ever going to have, I just can't even imagine like the anxiety or the worry or the fear. I mean, I had all the, I mean, as a first time mom, those were there and then being classified as high risk. So anyways, that's a story for another day. But the irony of it all is I was seen the specialist and then I was kind of dismissed from the specialist in late January saying, you're fine, you're good to go. And then the last six weeks of the pregnancy, I was kind of unmonitored and uh, we had Charlotte. She came in early March, first day of spring break. I think she's a planner like her mom. So <laughs> yeah, so uh, the pregnancy itself was pretty much uneventful. But on her birthday, she arrived at 2.03 p.m. in the afternoon. And by seven o'clock that night, the doctors realized that there were complications and whatnot. And so by that night, we ended up having a hysterectomy. Sorry, I didn't think I would get emotional. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. So I was able to have the typical like delivery and whatnot. And then I had, I guess you could say a blessing in a way. It was almost like a C-section, like through this unexpected surgery. So I feel like in the days since then, I can kind of, it's not the same thing. I can't say I've had a C-section, but I can relate to the recovery and the unexpected, like even with mothers who are still able to have additional babies. So that's been interesting. So, so that's where we are. So going back to that license plate story, (laughs) (laughs) I have struggled as a wife and as a mother of one wonderful, pun intended, O-N-E, wonderful child. Now it's like, oh goodness, Lord, like, why did you bring us across three time zones together? (laughs) California, North Carolina, and had that conversion of heart, like in my husband, who went from never really considering future family size and like being kind of open to light. And I mean, I don't want to say he was completely closed off, but it just wasn't at the forefront of his mind to he was as open as could be. And then now he's with a wife who can't give him that. So, you know, but I, I did ask him the other day when I told him I was doing this, I said, do you have any thoughts that, um, and this might be getting ahead of ourselves, but I just want to kind of close off this part of the story with what he said. I mean, I said earlier, like, Lord, why would you bring us together when I can't give him that? But he knows what he's doing. Like, I could not ask for a better partner or a better person to be on this journey that we really did not expect or anticipate. And who does? But I said, do you have any points that I want to bring up on your behalf? And he said, just that I love you no matter what. And I love our family no matter what. I'm like, okay. (laughs) You know, like, yeah. yeah. I can't ask for anyone better to be that companion on the journey, so. Ah, Meg, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, you have such a a joy about you in in sharing your story, Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, hard times and things that, uh, yeah, are sad and and worthy of grieving. And we like to have a good balance of that here as Springs in the Desert. So I really appreciate you, uh, you sharing that because a lot of those crosses are 
perhaps unexpected, as you said, or or just just not even they're sort of in the the rear view mirror. We can't quite see in the blind spot until they really, you know, they come forward and we have to try to figure out how to navigate those crosses. So I I really appreciate that. I think the community will be able to really resonate with a lot of your story. And so I just want to continue uh, with another story, Alyssa, if I would just love to hear a little bit more about your story. Sure. My story actually started long before I even knew Paul. As a teenager, you know, as a girl, you're just waiting for that day when your period finally comes. Your friends are saying, oh my gosh, I I got mine and did you get yours yet? And comparing notes and things like that. And um, I was left in the dust. I remember I eventually was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So as a, a young teen, I remember just kind of thinking, when's it my turn? When, when do I get to compare notes? And I, part of me, I was a swimmer also. So part of me was like, okay, don't have to deal with that. Great. But the other bigger part of me was like, what's wrong with me? I remember, you know, saying prayers to God, just like, can I please just have a period? And it was a strange prayer because all of my friends were saying the opposite, like, get this out of here. So um, my story started there. And eventually at 17, I went to a OBGYN with my mom And I don't know how much you guys know about polycystic ovarian syndrome, but sometimes gynecologists, at least at that point in time, were not so educated on what all of the criteria would be. So they gave me an ultrasound. I did not have the stereotypical visual polycystic ovaries. They looked normal. So they said, oh, you're good to go. It's you're just a late bloomer. I was like, I'm 17. That's a pretty late bloomer. So I just said, okay, fine, great. They gave me birth control to kick off a period so that that, you know, the lining would shed and, you know, all the risk factors for not having that happen would be minimized. And they said, go on your merry way. I didn't like the medicine. So I eventually was like, I'm not taking this anymore. We'll figure this out in a different way. It just felt wrong. So um, fast forward to my early 20s. I found a new doctor. I was off on my own. I had my own insurance. I was like, we're going to figure this out now. I ended up being formally diagnosed. I got all the tests. I got the blood work. They were like, yes, this is what it is. They ruled out everything else. So it was a pretty solid, good diagnosis at that point. And up until this point, I still hadn't met Paul. So I was kind of armed with, okay, I'm probably going to have problems when it comes time to making a family happen. Fortunately, in some odd way for Paul and I, we knew it going in. We knew it came up as we were getting more seriously into dating. And, you know, before we got married, he knew what the situation was. So it was almost like we had some sort of mental preparedness, but it's almost like you don't know what kind of mental preparedness you need when it comes to infertility, despite the fact that I was already through all the diagnosis portion of that journey. When we finally did decide that, okay, let's let's start trying. We after we got married, we we didn't immediately start trying. We we were just like, we're not going to time anything. We're not going to go crazy trying to figure out how to make this happen. We're just going to let nature take its course. Five years later, nature had not taken any course, so we went to a specialist and began meds and all the things that we know go into uh, figuring out what cycle happens. Which I still didn't have one naturally. I still, if I don't do anything. Again, fast forwarding. Now at 40, for some reason, I I say I hit puberty at 40 because now I have a cycle, but (laughs) it didn't happen until I think I was 38 when, when it started coming regularly. But anyway, that's a different story. 
So um, we started with the specialist and just to get my body going, I had to take a cocktail of medications to push that ovulation to go through. Luckily, I had lots of little follicles and I had all of the little pieces. My body just needed that shove. The first shove, the first time out, took the meds, did all the things and ended up pregnant first try. We were so we were ecstatic. We were so happy, unfortunately. And again, I didn't know I was going to get emotional. That that baby is in heaven. Um, that pregnancy lasted maybe five weeks. And in hindsight, we probably would never, never even known that I was pregnant at that point if I wasn't doing the fertility treatments because of all of the early ultrasounds to um, make sure everything is, you know, doing what it needs to do. I probably would have never even known. So on one hand, I'm grateful that I know because because I have that mini connection with another soul out there. But it's just an interesting dynamic to be like, why do I know this when there's probably so many other people who just had no, would have had no idea. So we took a break for a little while and we said, okay, let's, let's try this again. Did all the things and we ended up with Adelaide, which in itself is an interesting story because initially when we were doing all those early scans, at first, they couldn't find, they could only find the gestational sac. They couldn't find anything inside of it. And so they were saying, oh, maybe it's a molar pregnancy. Maybe it's ectopic. Maybe it's all these different things. So I was bracing myself for another loss. But Paul and I joke, she willed herself into life because we went for the next scan, nothing. Next scan, I think I think it was two or three scans of it's not happening this time. We got to look for what what the next step is. And at some point, there she was, little heartbeat. And we were like, oh, so it, it's she's our little miracle, literally, like she willed herself into life and she still wills herself through life. I think it's like that started that personality really, really early on. So after we had Adelaide, we took time to, you know, transition to family life and small ones in the house and things like that. And I specifically remember thinking, watching her just playing by herself. I was like, I'd really love to get her a little sibling to play with. So open the doors for all the things again, all of the treatments and all of the medications and the shots and the scans and all the things that everyone is so, so intimately uh, knowledgeable of in this community. It, it took a few more years before we were positive pregnancy test for Nicholas. The funny thing about him, he he was just pretty normal. He was like, yeah, I'm here. Good to go. But the funny part about him was this whole time between having Adelaide and becoming pregnant with Nicholas, Paul was, he was discerning his vocation to the priesthood. We were, you know, trying to figure out if, if this is us, what's the next step? What do we do? And so the same week that he got an acceptance letter to seminary, we found out we were pregnant with Nicholas. So it was just like, <laughs> do all of life today. <laughs> So I feel like I've run the gamut. I went from just like the question mark of initial infertility, primary infertility, and then into the secondary infertility. And that's kind of where we live now. We're not going to try for any more. We just have the philosophy that if it happens, it happens. But I know the feeling of that. I think they call it the geriatric uterus or something like that, which I completely hate that term. But I'm well into those years. So Again, we're going to uh, be sticking here, sticking around in secondary infertility land and just find the happiness that we find here. Oh, thank you, Alyssa, for sharing. You know, while you were talking, something that really just kept kind of coming up into my heart is that 
there are just so many crosses that come up into our lives. And I think in this community, you know, for instance, Anne and Kimberly, the founders of Springs in the Desert, talk a lot about how when they started Springs in the Desert, their their focus was primary infertility because that was their experience. And now over the several years that this apostolate has existed, they have realized all the many paths that are on this journey. And I, I think sometimes there could be, or at least perhaps I've even I've even seen this in my own heart, this um, temptation to kind of compare our crosses, you know, but just the crosses that you all were sharing from discernment between spouses and kind of being on separate pages at first to, you know, unexpected medical decisions to all the scans and all the, the medications and maybe not feeling comfortable with some that, that are offered and having to figure that out. And then sort of discerning, do we, pause treatment? Do we stop treatment? What's the next step? You know, there's so many, so many crosses that I think we could be tempted to compare. Um, And so I just, you know, we've really been talking about for the last few months at Springs in the Desert about who belongs here and and who this community is for. And I, I think sometimes uh, those who experience secondary infertility come to the belief that they don't belong here because of their experience, because perhaps they do have one or two or however many children at home. Um, and so, Meg, I'm curious, has that been your experience, you know, in relation to perhaps other women or couples? And maybe um, how, how, what's a better way that we could, we could walk with each other? Wow, that's a fabulous question. And I think very layered. <laughs> it's like peeling back an onion and trying to get to all those different pieces. So, uh, looking at where we are, you know, we are both transplants here. We, we weren't born and raised here where we are. Admittedly, work brought us here. You know, I wanted to work somewhere. You shared in the bio, I work at a Catholic university. And on purpose, I wanted to come to a small school um, just to kind of carry within my teaching that family feel on the work side, right? Like really being able to get to know my students, they get to know me, advising, ser- like all the different service opportunities that lie in wait at a smaller school versus a large school. So in thinking about how I landed here in this community, like my niche, if you will, it was because of work. But also when I came, what I knew about this area was the fact that there's a huge homeschooling population, large families abound. And I wanted to be my husband and I both had this vision that we would be the family filling up the pews, you know, and maybe two pews in church, which is a common occurrence here. So in terms of relating to other women, specifically in this area, coming here, being so hopeful and joyful, because I came here when I started my job, I was engaged. So that first year we were planning the wedding. And then, like I said, Charlotte came soon after. So I relate to the, I'm in the mom's groups and, you know, we set up play dates and whatnot, but especially now, now that Charlotte's in first grade and the elementary years are upon us, it's a bit harder to have those impromptu play dates just because we had to make decisions and she's enrolled in school and not homeschooling. So it's an effort and I wouldn't say I'm introverted. I'm not really, it just depends on the circumstances, but you know, it takes work and effort, but you could say that probably about any Fostering relationships, making relationships, making connections takes effort, regardless of your personality type or 
work situation if you work inside the home versus outside the home. So there are many different layers, not to mention, let's add that secondary infertility component to it. So I'm really grateful for the community that we have here. And it just takes a lot of effort to make those connections and to try to relate to others. But I mean, I'll be frank that I I don't have any other mothers in this community like on the ground who are in the same situation. I I know of a couple mothers I've been able to reach out to and provide support based on my experiences when sadly they had to also go through unexpected medical challenges and they had a lot of children. So it's not the same. I don't want to say comparing. I mean, it's still a cross, but like you said, comparing classes and I don't know, like there were a couple families that we grew very close to families of three but now they have little siblings. So it's like one by one, you know, it's like, oh, we lost that connection. We're still friends and we still do things together. But I really want my daughter to see herself in a friend in the sense that, you know, she doesn't have the little sibling to play with, like Alyssa was describing. Like, uh, so that for me, I've turned to online resources, you know, or I've reached out like in Pittsburgh, I have a real good friend who has a very similar story and we've been able to connect through a virtual support group. And so I'm so thankful for this apostolate that links people together. And I'm so thankful that, because I didn't know what secondary infertility was until we started walking this path. So I'm glad that you're spreading awareness and shedding light on that. Yeah, you know, what I'm what I'm hearing uh, you say, which is a desire of my heart, right, is for community, you know, and that's that's what we're trying to provide here. And although, yes, we, we're talking about not comparing crosses, it is still true that, you know, when someone's cross looks a little bit different than ours, it, it, it can be challenging to figure out what that relationship looks like. And the Holy Spirit just keeps bringing up this verse. So I just, I need to share it in case it helps uh, someone. You know, we, we don't know why the Lord gives what he does or or holds back what he does and um but in any case he gives and takes away blessed be the name of the lord you know no matter what our experience is glory to him and both of your stories really I, I think speak to that um, to give him glory, even in those crosses. Before, yeah, before we wrap up, I am just curious if both of you have perhaps just a piece of advice or something that you've been able to do with your spouse that helps it helps this cross feel a little bit lighter. I'm sure that this cross looks a little bit different for the two of you. Perhaps you carry it differently. Maybe the grief has looked differently. Um, But how might we, because we really try to focus on supporting the marriage uh, at Springs in the Desert. And so, um, Alyssa, let's just start with you. Is there just something that maybe um, you and Father Paul are able to do that allows you to kind of shoulder the cross together? Sure. I think, I mean, this is, pretty unique to my situation, but I'm sure it can be translated into, you know, other, other ways, but even just being a clergy family has fulfilled a lot of those types of things. Sometimes I feel like I'm the first lady of our parish because, you know, the, I don't really have any official responsibilities, but you know, I'm kind of in a spotlight more or less. Everybody knows who I am and things like that. And so people come to me for advice or questions or sometimes things that go straight over my head. And I just say, go talk to the man. (laughs) But I do feel like there's something about tackling that together that brings us together. And it even comes into the home and we talk about things and things that people have come to us with. And I give him advice as far as well, maybe you should try this with this person, or maybe maybe this would help to make this more clear for another person. And we were able to kind of talk through those things together. So I guess that would translate to people who aren't 
a clergy family would just be finding something that is not necessarily about parenthood or fertility or anything like that, that you can come together and tackle together. I mean, that seems obvious, but sometimes that's the hard stuff to do because a lot of times these emotions and these, the pain and the grief divides. And so making an earnest effort to come together to tackle whatever it is you're going to tackle, I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, that's that's such a great idea. And I think, one, it speaks to the complementarity of husband and wife to work together. Mm. And two, you know, I'm sure a great place to start, even if you're not a clergy family, is at your parish, yeah. you know, to find some way that you could come together and, and serve together. So that I love that. Meg, what about you? What's something perhaps that you and Adam have been able to do to unite together? Yeah, so I have two quick things that kind of come to mind when I hear that question. So I'm going to kind of follow off of that line of serving the church. So it wasn't until the last couple of minutes listening to you talk that I kind of just had a revelation. So my husband, when we first married, he was a businessman and he worked remote. But then shortly after Charlotte was born, he discerned that he wanted to go back to school and become a teacher. Now, I don't think that had anything to do with spiritual fatherhood. Or at least maybe it was like subconscious. Like, I don't know if it was an intentional thing or if it was God working through our current situation. And then, so anyways, fast forward to now, and he's now a teacher at the local Catholic middle school. So through the service, through the classroom, through the students that we both spiritually parent, plus the college students I work with, and we invite them into the home for meals and whatnot, we both have given back to the church through that. And we serve alongside each other at Vacation Bible School or One year we taught our after-school religion classes. And so I don't know that he would have done that. Or if either of us could have participated in that service, spiritual fathering and mothering, if we had had more children in our home. So that has brought us closer. We've been able to unite through the service we give to others. And then even informal service, like Charlotte's birthday party last month. My mom sent me a picture that she had taken where he was leaned over and bent over and helping out this art craft, you know, and he's not a crafty person. So it just was, it was a profound moment and I missed it in the hustle and bustle of the party, but it's like we both rolled up our sleeves and we were all in. And like, even though it wasn't our daughter, he was helping out one of her little friends like during this birthday party. So that has helped to, I don't know, maybe pour forth our energy and our love that we would have showered on our own children, you know, onto others. Or even just when, you know, we have play dates, like they all know him as he's very much involved in her uh, everyday occurrences. And then the other component was we've really recently have tried to lean into and embrace the aspects like the, the Trinity aspect of our family. And uh, so on Sundays, we have Sunday fun day, family game day, and it's become a thing. It's really exciting. Like, we just started it during Lent and we're keeping it up and just kind of cultivating and creating those memories that I mean, you could do that in a large family, sure. But I just love that she's having, we're forming these memories that she'll have growing up. Whereas for me, my memories are rooted in my interactions with my brothers, but she's got these, hopefully she'll have these close memories of interacting with her parents and having these fun games that uh, that we engage in, plus trips and, you know, day trips and things like that. We try to fill up our days with adventures. Oh, gosh, those are also just really great, really great ideas. You know, I think um, even just the idea of, you know, perhaps going back to school or pursuing a new hobby or learning a new skill, you know, I think can be so life giving. And to even if you're not able to do it together, don't have the same interest to share your creations or what you're learning, you know, with each other. And then, yeah, making memories. That's 
that's a beautiful, a beautiful example of how to lean into some joy, um, especially of the resurrection, you know, that we wouldn't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And so that balance of that. Gosh, ladies, it has been such a good conversation and I will be unpacking this for for a while. But I just want to close a little bit differently than we normally do. Alyssa actually wrote a beautiful prayer. Uh, and I when I was praying through it, I felt very very understood. <laughs> and it was it was the words I, I wanted to say to Jesus, but I haven't been able to. And so I'm just going to close this episode with this prayer in hopes that also our listeners will, will be able to take this prayer and, and offer it to the Lord. So let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, I come to you with a gracious heart for trusting me with the souls of your children. Help me to be a worthy example of faithfulness, love, and trust in you. Let me never take for granted how precious their lives are. Let me never forget the intense longing felt while navigating the waters of infertility or the elation and relief upon their birth. Help me to be a gentle, patient, and understanding mother, remembering that each day with them is a gift. Lord, as I navigate through the waters of motherhood, I find myself between two worlds of women those still experiencing infertility, and those who have born children. I can't help but feel guilty as though I've left the first group behind, while simultaneously feeling understood in the latter group as I carry the scars of infertility, scars that most mothers don't fully understand. I pray that those still longing for motherhood find fruitfulness in all the gifts you bestow them. I pray that those women with effortless fertility find wonder and awe in the miracle of life. I pray that those who find themselves in between find camaraderie among all women. I pray that women find their place in your glory, no matter their circumstance, infertile, fertile, and anywhere in between. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Meg and Alyssa, thank you so much for this conversation. Alyssa, thank you for that that beautiful prayer. Um, I think it reveals both really the crosses that you can experience in between sort of these two worlds. And Springs and Desert community, as always, it's an honor to walk with you. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us for this Springs in the Desert podcast episode. If you have a minute, please rate and review us so that we can reach more listeners. Check out our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. And go to our website, springsinthedesert.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter and hear about more things that we have going on. Most importantly, remember that God loves you so much, and so do we.